0: afternoon. It's Friday the 28th of October, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Calm News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we've got Alex Thompson, Patrick Henningsen and Vanessa Bailey. So it's going to be a a busy schedule today. Uh, We're just going to get straight on here with the uh, Christopher Chope's uh, COVID-19 vaccine damage bill, which is having its its private members bill, having its second reading in the House of Commons today. Uh, So he will be uh, giving his speech shortly. Um, And uh, well, This is a bill, as he describes, is to require the Secretary of State to establish an independent review of uh, disablement caused by COVID-19 vaccinations and the adequacy of the compensation offered to persons so disabled uh, and for connected purposes, as they they usually say with these things. Now, it is a private member's bill. So because it doesn't have uh, government sponsorship, uh, it's going to be much harder for that to pass. So it is going to require some Public support, I'm quite sure, uh, and particularly following the uh, the charade of the House of Commons debate that we talked about on Wednesday's program. Uh, but would also like to highlight uh, this uh, um, interview that's been that's on the UK Column website at the moment. This is Charlotte, uh, who is uh, uh, vaccine damaged herself as a result of the COVID-19 vaccination. So she uh, f- is following up on with her first, uh, after her first interview, to update on what it's uh, like nearly two years uh, since the uh, being injected with a vaccine that could uh, have ruined or could change your life forever. Uh, and really want to highlight this uh, video and suggest that everybody watches it, but also uh, do, uh, if you are able to provide some financial support to UKCV family who are supporting roughly 800 people uh, who are vaccine damaged uh, as a result of the COVID-19 vaccine at the moment. So Christopher Chope's bill uh, getting its second reading today, whether it gets any further or not, I think is very much up to the general public, but Alex, uh, some comment on Twitter about this.
1: This is not directly related to Charlotte's plight, although I very much urge people to read the transcript in full and uh, listen to that. But let's bring on screen uh, another example of the same thing. And it's particularly the uh, learned answer that I want to draw people's attention to. So another case of uh, vaccine damage was uh, discussed. Experimental injections is the wording used by Kimmy G, and we always get people saying you shouldn't say vaccine, but it is the common parlance, so we will. Uh, so look at this: the uh, Western A Price Foundation, which is US-based but has a London chapter, has replied on two uh, in two tweets, which we have on two slides. First of all, here, where the material risks—that is, uh, the risks of being jabbed have not been disclosed, the action is clinical negligence. To a limited extent, this would apply in all common law jurisdictions and would have a European equivalent in civil law jurisdictions. So material risks not being disclosed. So in practice, that means the reading of the patient information leaflet about which there has been some to do this week, as we've discussed on UK column. Western A Price Foundation adds, where valid consent was not obtained, it is trespass. Look, that the insistence here is to go back to old common law terms. Trespass to the person in the form of battery, which is, for those who don't know the term, loosely related to the idea of assault. Coercion by a third party causes two-party intimidation. Next slide brings up that up to more date. Our problem, and this is a more general comment by Western A. Price Foundation, our problem is that rather than to rely on tort, which is the common law understanding of causing someone a wrong, and criminal law, People have focused on human rights, which, of course, as you know, Mike, is a, a, a bugbear that we often talk about, that human rights has become the, the law uber alles. Uh, the foundation can, continues the tweet by saying, look at the 1998 Act. That's the Human Rights Act, the first one that the UK ever had. Most of the so-called rights can be set aside in the interest of public health, which renders them limited, violable liberties, liberties that can be violated. So the idea is to get yourself a legal advisor, solicitor, barrister, Mackenzie, friend, uh, anyone who you can to pursue these matters, uh, who is going to pursue them under English law. And on a, on a related follow up to that is uh, the Member of Parliament who was most mocked and, well, faced outrage for his comments in the Westminster Hall debate earlier this week on the long awaited debate uh, forced by a petition on vaccine adverse reactions as a result of COVID jabs. The uh, member of parliament who made that very catty remark about conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers uh, has just been posing for Twitter, saying, "If you're aged 50 or over, now's the time to get your free flu vaccine and COVID booster." Uh, this has caused some uh, indignation in the form of a cartoon response on the next slide, uh, which I think. Uh, uh, well, we'll, we'll keep, gonna, we'll keep that one to later. News. Yes, we're going to keep that till the end of the news.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much for that, Alex. Now, very briefly, Patrick, uh, what what is the situation in the United States with respect to the the vaccine adverse reactions, and and the uh, is there any political uh, discussion on this issue?
2: There's there's not a lot uh, nationally. It's it's kind of the thing that people just want to sweep under the rug. As you know, the U.S. midterm elections are approaching on November eighth, so every it's like a giant vortex that just and sucks everything. Uh, in there. So there, there isn't really any real national discussion at the moment. It is coming up, however, in the state elections. So you can see this is an issue that's moving the dial uh, on state races, particularly governor races. The the, the race in New York uh, between Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin is tightened up. And one of the reasons is this issue of uh, protecting children. Uh, they don't want mask mandates. Parents don't want to see uh, schools locked down again, or locked, students locked out of schools, uh, and also the uh, mandatory vaccine issue, as the CDC has recently put it on the child vaccine schedule. And as we know, and as we've discussed on previous programs, uh, when a vaccine goes on the child CDC schedule, uh, what it does is that that's a loophole f- to uh, allow the emergency use authorization status to stay in place, not just for COVID vaccines for children, uh, but also for the adults as well. So if they can get it on the CDC children's schedule, it brings all of the vaccines, COVID vaccines, kind of under that sort of liability shield protection. So yeah. un- that's an unfortunate loophole that hasn't been closed yet in the United States. So yeah, it's still an issue on a local level and state level. On the national level, it's, it's not, it's sort of been moved off temporarily.
0: Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Now let's uh, move on then to, online safety bill, uh, because uh, that is being uh, the pages for that on the parliament website being updated uh, regularly. But the question in the mainstream press at the moment is, has it been delayed? Um, so here's the Guardian and their uh, headline, government criticised over a to de- delayed online safety bill. Uh, and that seems to have come about as a result of uh, uh, politics home noticing that it has dropped off the parliamentary agenda. So Politics Home understands that the bill was due to have its third reading in the Commons on Tuesday, the 1st of November, but has since been removed from Commons business. So as I say, the actual parliamentary page for this is being updated on a daily basis. Um, And uh, as we can see here, it is still showing though uh, that uh, the next event is going to be Tuesday, the 1st of November. Uh, But there are many amendments uh, coming through on this. uh, And certainly uh, the Government is saying that they are going to be uh, laying down amendments for the online safety bill to deal with concerns over the harmful but not harmful but legal idea. um, And we'll see exactly what those amendments are. Um, But anyway, the DCMS, the Department for uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport uh, had this to say, protecting children and stamping out illegal activity online is a top priority for the government and we will bring the online safety bill back to Parliament as soon as possible. So the estimation is that it is not going to get to the House of Lords stage by Christmas, and that is uh, of deep disappointment to some of the so-called disinformation campaigners. Uh, but don't worry, uh, the government is pursuing its uh, media literacy strategy, uh, and it's doing so with uh, some uh, UN money. So uh, this is uh, quite a bit of money which is going uh, fr- coming from the from UNESCO in particular, UNESCO Global Media and Information uh, literacy Week is at the moment, so uh, £1 million has been granted to 17 organizations to pilot new ways of boosting media literacy, particularly for people uh, who are experiencing online abuse or who are vulnerable in some way. Um, so this is one of the organizations that's receiving uh, money, Fresh, HRB, or Fresh RB, and this is going to work with young people to develop their own podcasts exploring online disinformation and misinformation, which will be aired on local radio. Uh, And then we have uh, internetmatters.org, which uh, is going to provide media literacy training for care workers uh, and uh, so on. Uh, And Michelle uh, Donelon, the uh, Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media, Sports, said with the rise of online disinformation, teaching people to identify fact from fiction has never been more important to public safety. Uh, She said, as well as bringing forward new laws to tackle the root causes of these problems, we're funding organizations to give people the skills to stay safe online so everyone can benefit from from all that the internet has to offer. Or rather, Alex, the government can benefit from training people to believe certain narratives.
1: Well, that would be uh, apparently the way things are going, because uh, this is not the first time that schools have been used to train the population to think in a certain way towards commercial products as well. Uh, here in the Netherlands, to give one example, which appears seemingly innocuous, uh, the uh, uh, fruit and vegetable growers have used the captive audience of primary school children to insist on taste lessons where children are taught, this is the kind of food that you ought to develop a taste in. So although it's a very different sector than information, the common factor is consumption and training people in the right habits from the get-go.
0: Yeah, it's all about behavioural change. Uh, But if we put... uh... The Media Literacy Program Fund on screen. Um, this is another tranche of money. Uh, and winning projects uh, in the Media Literacy Program Fund to receive grants uh, include NewsGuard uh, and uh, the Economic, sorry, the Economist Educational Foundation, uh, and also online safety charity Glitch. Um, and uh, so, well, there you go, money going in all kinds of places. Uh, but Vanessa, what's the BBC been up to with TikTok? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, this is quite extraordinary. Um, a journalist friend of mine uh, sent me this uh, yesterday, actually. Um, and uh, they were equally horrified by it. This is the BBC clearly getting onto TikTok. And of course, TikTok, I think, came to the fore during the um, COVID project with all of the various dancing health service workers, etc. That's that's when I first became aware of it anyway. I, but then I'm not saying I'm the most uh, modern as regards all of these new platforms. But uh, let's have a look at um, the the actual job application. It closed on uh, the 11th of October, I believe. So I've just picked out a couple of the main points. First of all, the team are located in Kiev with a few journalists in London. So note, no journalists in Russia or in Donbass, all of them clustered basically Uh, at the headquarters of the ultranationalist operations in Ukraine, right? So this is immediately you're seeing where this entire project is slanting. Then it goes on to main responsibilities. The senior journalist for our TikTok channel with the understanding of the BBC Ukrainian strategy, interesting wording, maybe Alex wants to comment on that will suggest ideas appropriate to its distinctive style and content, offering new angles on existing stories and to put forward stories not yet covered. But I think what is very interesting here, are you the right candidate? We're looking for someone with experience of video storytelling. Of course, where have we heard that before? Um the the PR operation for the White Helmets in Syria. Syria campaign put out very similar advertisements for people to join their teams. They didn't need any experience in Syria itself. The stories would be provided to them. Um, the candidate needs an access to a wide range of contacts in order to promote our TikTok channel and to attract new talent. New talent. I mean that again, that's very odd wording um, for what should be a serious state media operation. Excellent knowledge and understanding of Ukrainian language. Why not of Russian language when there are many Russian speakers both in Western Ukraine and in the now Russian um, sectors of Eastern Ukraine um, with an understanding of political, social, cultural and historical context. Well, the BBC rarely shows any understanding of political, social, cultural, and historical context, as well as the changing needs of the audience is important. This reads like a PR appointment, not like, as I said, a serious journalistic appointment. And of course, a quick look, who else is on TikTok? The Syrian civil defense, which is the name they stole, of course, from the real Syria civil defense in Syria established in 1953 better known as the White Helmets, an organization in Syria affiliated with the terrorist groups that was heavily promoted by the BBC.
0: Yes. Uh, Now, Patrick, uh, related, I suppose, in many ways, is the takeover of uh, uh, Twitter by Elon Musk and uh, developments in that area because uh, it seems the uh, two most senior uh, board members have now left.
2: Uh yeah not just left uh well uh, major executives have been uh i believe fired. Uh so Elon Musk has officially taken over Twitter. Uh these are the latest reports and his first uh move was to fire a number of top executives and he's planning to uh fire thousands of other employees uh many of which are involved in so-called content uh moderation here. And so that that was his opening salvo. He he sacked uh, numerous top executives. And employees who are running the company's, this is uh, our words, the company's bloated Orwellian censorship department. This would effectively end the brutal partisan and big pharma authoritarian censorship regime, which has all but ruined the platform in recent years. Obviously, some heavy uh, opinion there in the 21st Century Wire uh, line. But uh, a CEO, Parag Agrawal, um, he is uh, regarded by many as like ultra woke. Um, he took over uh, in the when Jack Dorsey uh, left uh, the company, and he was uh, so the chief financial officer as well, head of legal policy, trust and safety. So you can see where this is going. Uh, Elon Musk is basically taking a torpedo to the whole content moderation thing and vowing—well, uh, not vowing, but people are believe this is vowing to reinstate uh, numerous uh, accounts which were banned. Under the COVID disinformation or medical misinformation, uh, a purge that's happened over the last couple of years, and there's other uh, uh, users as well that would fall under that. Elon Musk's position is, if it's if it's not illegal speech or there's not incitement or anything that uh, could be prosecutable by law, etc., uh, then it should be uh, generally should be allowed. Um, so this is obviously causing a lot of problems. Number of uh, other people, officers. Uh, will also be sacked um, as well, sort of mid-level management. So big shake up here. So he's taking it private. So it's no longer a public company. And he, funny enough, he the initial offer he made way back in the spring, I think it was $54 a share. And there's been a lot of volatility in Twitter, uh, a lot of which is a direct result of his involvement in wanting to acquire the company. And up and down, up and down, and guess where the price settled on the very day he took over the Uh, The company settled at $54 a share. So unbelievable timing. Uh, Maybe not. (laughs) So maybe not a coincidence. But uh, So he he got the deal, I think, that he was looking for on price. And already he's talking about making changes uh, to the advertising structure, much of which would, would put the company's revenue immediately up. So you can see he's wanting to cut costs immediately. So he's wanting to trim the fat. Uh, that was basically this giant Orwellian machine that had been built up over the years.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, uh, let's move on to Ukraine, Patrick. And uh, we're starting off here with with what the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis.
2: Yeah. So this, this week is the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And obviously people are wondering, have we learned the lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years on? We're talking about the situation in Ukraine, the parallels. Are eerie. Uh, the only difference is, and uh, you might argue, and I, I do encourage people to go to 21st Century Wire. There's an interview which is in the feature section with former CIA analyst Ray McGovern, who briefed many presidents and who began his career exactly during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I had a chance to sit down and talk with him about his experience back then, what how he interpreted that event in history. And what the parallels are today and what Ray McGovern said, former CIA analyst said, that uh, now JFK, the position of JFK is really uh, being, being played by Vladimir Putin uh, in 2022. And so that's probably going to be difficult for some uh, uh, Westerners to get their head around, but uh, he explains it very well. And so Moscow is under a direct threat that's equal or much more so even than the threat that the United States believed uh, it was under uh, with the placement of certain types of missiles and military equipment in Cuba 90 miles off its coast uh, of southern Florida. So I think there's a lot to learn there. Ray eloquently uh, laid this out, and I I do encourage people to go watch that. So, But uh, I don't know if you had a chance, Mike, to catch any of Vladimir Putin's uh, speech at the Valdai Club, this past week, but it was certainly incredible.
0: Uh, no, I haven't seen that yet.
2: Well, its I, I think there's it, a number of these speeches that are by, by either Lavrov or Putin or Maria Zakharova that are just completely on point, um, but they're really calling out. The gloves are kind of off, no longer playing nice and diplomatic speak. So here's some highlights from Putin's speech, which I think are uh, pretty significant in terms of how clear they were. The so called West, he said, which is, of course, a theoretical construct since it is not limited and clearly is a highly complex conglomerate. But I will say that the West has taken a number of steps in recent years and especially in recent months that are designed to escalate the system wide crisis. And he goes on to be sure the latter was, of course, not done uh, on purpose. Uh, there is no doubt about it. The destabilization. Uh, of energy markets resulted from a number of systemic missteps made by Western authorities. So he's pointing to a number of policies with regards to energy that created the perfect storm. The situation was further aggravated by the destruction of the pan-European gas pipelines. Global power is is exactly what the so-called West has at stake in its game, but this game is certainly dangerous, bloody, and I would say dirty, says the Russian a president. And he goes on, it denies the sovereignty of countries and peoples, their identity and uniqueness, and tramples upon other states' interests. And he m- moves on, humankind is at a forefront, uh, either accumulating problems eventually get crushed under their weight, or we work together, even imperfect ones, as long as they work, can make the world a more stable, safer. Place And finally says, I've always believed in the power of common sense. The West will have to start a dialogue on equal footing. Those are just highlights from this speech. Obviously, there's a lot more in there. And if you want to see the full context, that's available on a number of portals online. So not difficult to find that text. But I, I think it's it's amazing because now the, the, the diplomatic dialogue that's normally um, makes these sort of uh, exchanges much softer and more palatable uh, between countries and people. I think Russia's no longer, they've dispensed with all of that and they're really just calling out what they see uh, with their view of what global power politics uh, currently looks like. And they're really decrying and calling out the the West and NATO and Britain, mainly the United States and Britain's main role um, as disruptors uh, saboteurs and saying, "Well, is this is this what the West has become? Uh, saboteurs, disruptors, and is this is this effectively the Great Game 2.0? I mean, are we still playing off the same uh, geopolitical script um, that we have been for hundreds of years?" And the answer is yes. Uh, so he's just articulating this with a lot more detail,
1: uh, Alex. It's instructive as a microcosm of this, just to contrast that speech with what we've heard from Vanessa about the BBC Ukrainian strategy. Now, uh, I know that people might misinterpret the idea of BBC Ukrainian strategy. It's not meant by the person who wrote that dodgy document as BBC strategy for the Ukraine. It's meant to mean the strategy of BBC Ukrainian, which is a brand like BBC Persian. However, uh, the, the part that Vanessa rightly highlighted was that BBC Ukrainian, as a service, has a quote, distinctive style and content. In other words, London has requirements for Kiev, and people might not not like not, not like to hear it. They might think it a facile or a naive point. But Putin is saying the Ukrainians, not that he names them individually, uh, but nations including Ukraine have a uniqueness in the world. The Western response, and Putin quite rightly says the West is a dissipate beast and is, is now talking about itself as a global or a, um, a, a an aggregate West. But the idea there is that uh, the the only distinctiveness is how the centers in the West engineer and manipulate the people involved. You even see that if we look at the Twitter segment just now uh, with the European Union's or more particularly the European Commission's response to Elon Musk's tweet. Uh, As he took over Twitter, he tweeted yesterday, the bird is freed. And the uh, competent European Union commissioner for Twitter, Thierry Breton, replied in a quote tweet, in Europe. The bird will fly by our EU rules and with a hashtag underneath DSA, which is the forthcoming European Union's digital services agreement. No room for distinctiveness there, whether of individuals or of nations.
0: Yes, and just so everybody knows, the digital services agreement is the EU's equivalent of the online safety bill. Uh, So anyway, uh, let's uh, move on to to Ukraine and uh, media and so on, particularly the Merit Veret's website. And I want to highlight this uh, interview. It's in French on the Rezo. Uh, international website and it's uh, entitled Mert Mer- uh, extra ju- Extrajudicial Executions. Uh, and this is featuring uh, a former uh, French m- uh, military general, retired uh, uh, General Dominique uh, Delawarde, uh, saying, uh, this is a translation, so it may not be uh, quite up to Alex's standards, but nonetheless, it's saying extrajudicial ju- executions are now the rule, not the exception. Uh, what is unprecedented today is the magnitude and uh, uh, of mo- sorry is the magnitude of this mode of terrorist action its open and uninhibited nature and the active complicity of the governments of the major western countries which ensure the financing and impunity of merit threats uh, and assassinations who do the job uh, ukraine could not on its own draw up the lists of opponents to be killed across the entire planet and manage the collection and publication of data on each of the targets. For me, there is no doubt that the neoconservative and globalist Anglo-Saxon diaspora uh, is at the helm in this affair. Uh, Only alliance of major uh, services such as the Mossad, the MI6 and CIA can obtain this result thanks to its antennas or planetary relays. Uh, Now, I know you've got some thoughts on this, Vanessa. You're muted.
3: Um, Yeah, this ties in um, very much to a recent initiative by um, the Foundation to Battle Injustice, which, funnily enough, is known as the FBI, um, which was established to push back and to campaign against the Muratveretz site and to demonstrate the fact that it is basically NATO-produced. Um, And the latest initiative is against the CEO of Cloudfare, uh, F-A-R-E, Matthew Prince, who Cloudfare is effectively hiding the IP address of this website, of the Merot website. So he is effectively, Matthew Prince is effectively complicit in this website and the assassinations that have been carried out as a result of the establishment of This website. So I urge people um, to use their Twitter platform if they have one, to tweet out to this Matthew Prince, CEO of Cloudfare, and to question why he is supporting a list that has on it people like uh, Roger Waters, Eva Bartlett, myself, uh, a number of independent journalists, and more than 300 children.
1: Uh, Alex. People who are watching on repeat could go back a couple of minutes to see the graphic for themselves again, but how instructive that the first slide in this segment, which shows the Mirotvorets website logo, has an oversized Ukraine sitting astride the globe with a bunch of networking lines, which could look like latitude and longitude lines, but they're networking on the center of the Ukraine. Mirotvorets, which means peacekeeper, it's a a ghastly um, misappropriation of blessed other peacemakers from the Beatitudes, and underneath is the cod Latin motto, pro bono publico, for the public good. Something that we've been uh, much exercised with in our discussion of human rights and law—that you can get away with all manner of evil in the name of the public good. I would say that the pro bono publico as a slogan um, justifying uh, or, or condoning assassination is simply uh, the equivalent of our an uh, uh, our day of the Nazis für ihre Sicherheit for your safety and security.
0: Yeah. Okay. And uh, Patrick, uh, on Wednesday's program, we highlighted uh, the open letter from 30 Democrats, the uh, Dem- members of the Democratic uh, Party uh, calling on uh, Biden to begin negotiations with uh, with y- between Ukraine and Russia, or at least encourage negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. It seems there's been some pushback on that. You're muted. Uh, so, sorry, hold on. Go ahead. No, we've got a, sorry, Patrick, we've got a, we've got a slight technical problem there. Just, let's, let's just uh, try again.
2: Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, Mike? Yes,
0: you're good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, they they withdrew the letter. They withdrew the letter. This is from the, the progressive caucus of the democratic party. They withdrew it and they wanted to clarify the clarification they had to, to make uh, without being torn to pieces by uh, the, the the pro-war wing of the U.S. mainstream media, which is the entire mainstream media, uh, is that we still support aid and military aid to the uh, regime in Kiev. Sorry, I used the term regime. That's a pejorative term. To the regime in Kiev. Um, and so they're saying, but we still support diplomacy. Um, so what's amazing is that they got crushed uh, for basically first saying that, that we need to pursue a diplomatic solution. And I don't know if you covered this or not, but this is, this letter might have been, a part, in part anyway, a direct result of the uh, the intervention by uh, independent U.S. Senate candidate Diane Sayre at the uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand event, uh, where she challenged her and told her about this kill list, the fact that Diane Sayre is on the kill list, and that she's received no... Uh, acknowledgement or much less any protection uh, from the U.S. government on this. And so there's a whole story uh, to do with that. But uh, the other thing is, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's one of the core leading members of the Progressive Caucus, um, she got doorstepped at one of her town hall events. And it really put on the spot by anti-war protesters, saying, why are you supporting this proxy war in Ukraine? You're pushing the country to the edge of nuclear uh, war. Uh, And so what well, that's that says two things one is that actual activism actual people on the ground locally getting active can actually push an event like this whereby the progressive caucus was scared about their their bona fides their their progressive bona fides being put into question especially ahead of the midterm elections so that's a direct result of individuals who took action and put pressure on this caucus to put that letter out, it's caused this storm, and overall, this is a good thing because at least it's shown. If it, even if the issue doesn't get taken up in the way that uh, many would like, it shows the hypocrisy, and it shows the fact that there's a lot of pressure on politicians to back the war machine, especially Democrats, which, in the words of Tulsi Gabbard, have become the party of warmongers.
0: mongers. Uh, yeah, and we should just uh, remind everybody, Patrick, that Diane, the, the the media or the television debate, which is taking place on Sunday, I believe, between Chuck Schumer and I've forgotten the name of the Republican candidate, uh, which Diane sir, has been banned from taking part in, or is Pinion. not lying.
2: His name's Pinion, I yes, think. Yes, yes, that's right.
0: Uh, and and so and so, you know, it is an, quite an incredible situation that that uh, uh, she has uh, developed a support within that uh, area of New York. Um, for her candidacy, but she is not still not entitled to take part in the democratic process.
2: Yeah, this the system's rigged against independents. That's not just in New York; uh, that's uh, in, nationwide, in fact. And if you're running for president as independent, um, you got 50 different problems you have to overcome uh, in getting on the ballot, getting on debate stages, and so forth. So how it's funny, quickly how they're uh, uh, making it exclusive. Uh, against people like Diane Sawyer, independent candidates, is they're saying you're not polling to a certain level. Um, so, and if she says, "Well, I'm not," the pollsters aren't even mentioning me when they're doing the telephone polls because they've left the independent candidates out, of course. So that you can see the whole system in this so-called democracy, the leading beacon in the West, is 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 a complete sham uh, when it comes to uh, showing plurality among anybody uh, who is not who's outside of the two-party duopoly.
0: Yes. Uh, Now, I interviewed Diane Sarah a week or two ago, and that's the interview still on the front page of the UK column website. So if you haven't seen that yet, please do go and watch that. And she could do with uh, support no matter where you live around the world. Um, Vanessa, let's uh, come on to uh, Iran then. And of course, uh, the BBC has been uh, making a huge deal over the last uh, number of weeks about protests uh, and women's rights and these kinds of things. Uh, What's actually going on there?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, yes. Amnesty International, the BBC, the CNN, all all the usual suspects are picking up um, this. Really, it's a tragic story of Massa Armenia, 22-year-old young girl who was taken in by the so-called um, morality police. Although that's a that's a translation that is running in the West. It's not a, a not a very accurate one. Um, I think they're better known as the guidance patrol or something similar by Iranians. Um, and she effectively collapsed when she was in the waiting room and she was taken to hospital um, with apparent heart problems and she she died um, from that. Of course, the, the story that is being promulgated is that she was beaten in custody and that she died from Um, the brutality of the uh, so-called morality police. And so what I wanted to try and do is to reach out to um, various Iranians, strangely enough, to speak to them about what is going on on the ground. This particular young lady, Setare Sadiki, who has a PhD in American studies from the University of Tehran. She's a researcher, a political analyst, a women's rights activist inside Iran itself, in Esfahan, very strong uh, political views uh, and a very powerful young lady. I would recommend that everybody listen to this interview in full. It's about an hour long. It's at my YouTube, my Substack, all my various platforms, but I think She, more than any other, has clarified for me also exactly what is going on inside Iran. And I just wanted to play a very short clip of her response um, to me asking her to what extent is the West trying to direct what is going on in Iran.
4: It was very obvious that what we were saying online, especially on Twitter, was not reflective of what I was observing here and where I live at all. And, um, to me, as an, as someone who, like, was pursuing that demand, uh, in my own base, um, I saw, like, an attack on the agency and credit of Iranian women because, you know, I mean, when I, if I, if I want the government to change something, um, I don't need to use hashtags in English, right? Uh, sure. I don't need to, I mean, that, that doesn't really make any sense. And, um, and I don't think that's something that has to do with anyone from outside. Um, I've been obsessed with this quote from Malcolm X, which because I think it resonates <laughs> with uh, how I feel, um, that where, where he says that, um, during his famous speech, the bullets or the ballot that, um, this is, About our civil rights and our brothers in Asia and in Africa and in Latin America have to, um, stay silent about it. So this is exactly how I feel. Like, yes, we're, we're forming movements. We're being active and Iranian women are really powerful. You probably know well about Mm -hmm. it. It's like 57% of university students in Iran are women. Women are, um, Involved in different sectors of the society and the economy and yes, there are inequalities, there are problems, we have issues with certain things, but we know how to deal with that. Um We have previously managed to change the law in favor of women uh, by electing, for example, different parliament members or by educating uh, uh, families and men and there are female entrepreneurs or, you know, um, activists around the country and they're doing their job. And suddenly you see um, protests, which I think they started as very legitimate and I understand the anger. Um, But soon the main purpose is lost and it's very difficult to see what exactly is being demanded you you see a shift from uh slogans that were calling for more women rights into regime change and uh yeah. and and it becomes at at some point i mean right now we're seeing videos coming from um even universities of of course by a fringe um using like very vulgar misogynic sexist uh so called slogans which comes from Literally a rapist mentality, and it 's very difficult to want to be a part of that like that 's something that everyone wants to reject and
3: yeah, as i said I a hundred percent recommend that people listen to the whole interview, but she 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 clarifies everything, and what we 're actually seeing now is so similar to what we saw in Syria in two thousand and eleven. What's happening with these western inflamed protests is, of course, it's opening the door to the terrorist infiltration. We've seen violence against security forces. We've seen um, security guards having their throats slit, um, being shot. uh, Yesterday, I believe, Mohammed Morandi put out a tweet about it today. And we saw what is claimed to be an ISIS attack on the Iranian shrine of Shah uh, Shah in um, Shiraz two days ago. I think it was two days ago. Fifteen civilians killed, many of them children, and tens of people um, injured in this attack. One terrorist, ISIS terrorist, ISIS took responsibility for this. But we have to understand that groups like MEK, Mujahideen, Ekhalk, and uh, ISIS are Western managed and Mossad managed. And so, therefore, what, what we're seeing is these protests being used as a battering ram to bring in the terrorist attacks in Iran, which I'm sure has nothing to do with Iran's uh, solidarity with Russia and Ukraine. Um, and uh, there's a short video of a little boy who lost his father, his mother, and his brother in these
0: attacks. to <laughs> you
3: so I think you know what we have to remember is exactly what happened in Syria. Please don't support Amnesty International, BBC, CNN, Western regime campaigns for women's rights. They, they, they have absolutely no connection to women's rights. And these governments have absolutely no um, consideration for women's rights or human rights, as has been demonstrated um, for decades. Uh, So I think listen to the Iranian voices, just as we should have listened to the Syrian voices in 2011, um, and help them by lifting the sanctions. This is the strongest message that Seterre actually put across in her interview. How can women's rights progress if we are constantly under the economic savagery of the West. And of course, all of these Western-backed agents are calling for more sanctions against Iranian women in Iran.
0: Yes, okay, thank you, Vanessa, thank you for that. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but do share uh, this program and anything else that you see from us on various platforms. Now, Alex, uh, let's move on to uh, digital identity.
1: We have some illustrations from various countries of how the end game is digital identity. Uh, there were a, a few years in the 2010s when it was called global digital identity uh, and how this uh, the smart analysts realized that the thing to do Uh, would be to create crises in various countries so that in their various cultural and legal ways, uh, nations would respond to that and come up with pretexts, but the end game would be global digital ID. So from Northern Ireland, the smallest jurisdiction in the UK, and hence one that globalists like to fiddle with because it can be a, a pioneer for what can be done in a number of other countries, Northern Ireland has a uh, part of the government apparatus called the Business Services Organization, B S O underscore N I on Twitter. This was spotted by a viewer that they put out earlier in the month. Applications are open to join our team as program director Encompass in Belfast. Encompass with a lowercase E, possibly as some kind of branding, but that's the name of the project in question in the Northern Irish case. Encompass, lowercase e is a new major health and social care. IT initiative in Northern Ireland, revolutionising patient care and aiming to create, drum roll, a single digital record for every person in Northern Ireland. Not patient, not care client, person. So I went and followed this through to the jobs portion of HSCNI.net, which is the website where health and social care jobs in Northern Ireland are posted. Here was the job in question: Program Director Encompass. Uh, to be uh, performed from Clarendon Dock in Belfast, a salary of around 80,000 to 90,000 pounds, not bad. Uh, the further details were from a PDF that I managed to find from a link through, which is the program director job description. The vision is for an electronic health and care record for every citizen in Northern Ireland, is that should be give you, give you alarm bells here, which informs and supports, so the perspective is a third person here, Supports their health and well being throughout their life. So, the person in Northern Ireland is the product, you understand. It provides a digital platform that streamlines services and patient journeys by linking information across blah, blah, blah. Encompass will be designed and built, and notice that it's a system. The Encompass system will be designed and built by our people for our people, undefined possessor. It is where medical notes will be made, medicines prescribed tests ordered and referrals made and received in other words uh, everyone from the gp to the uh, clinic in northern ireland is going to be told you must make the notes in this system which will have a central node of course it as its encompass will provide real time up to date information to all those involved in caring for our patients so that would be the people owned by the unspecified possessor empowering them to make efficient effective patient centered decisions. It does not fill me with uh, warmth and a fuzzy feeling, as Brian might say. Uh, South of the border, Gript.ie has this report on a similar matter, which shows up some of the hypocrisy. In the Dublin government, uh, Stephen Donnelly is the Health Minister, and we reported recently that his department had flown a kite for the idea that masks might be coming back by mandate this winter in the Irish Republic. And he had made this public statement that we have oodles of data backing us. The link, of course, with the Northern Irish piece just we just now is that uh, the, the, the citizen must cough up all data to the government, but not necessarily vice versa. So Ben Scallon wrote this up. Uh, and this is on, slide, on screen now is the part of the health minister's speech in Dublin, uh, or, or remarks, not formal speech, uh, which uh, was uh, taken issue with. Uh, so Mr. Donnelly replied, when he was asked for the second time what data he had to support masking, he said, I mean, there's oodles of data. There's data all over the world. There's no serious argument being had in the medical community about whether face masks are an important public health measure. This went to a third time of asking, and to their credit, Mr. Donnelly's department, after gripped.ie first published this page, brought in a a response finally, uh, which gripped uh, updated their page with And this is just the end of the links that they furnished in their response to the GRIPT journalist. And these are, as you can well see, World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control and European CDC publications and guidance. But to give them their due, uh, above that section that I've just shown on screen, the first part of the response you'll find on that GRIPT page at the bottom is actually a whole bunch of hyperlinked uh, articles saying, look here, here and here. So the challenge now is for viewers Uh, to go through this uh, response that they'll find at the bottom of the page and actually see whether there was serious backing or not. Uh, It is at least a step forward that a a Western European country's government has now been obliged in its health department to come up with some of the evidence. Uh, Going to another branch of digital identity, which is that of central bank digital currencies, a a, a recurrent theme in our reporting now. Uh, This happened in mid-month. It's uh, been posted on the IMF's website, Uh, website, uh, a YouTube site. It's Central Bank Digital Currencies for Financial Inclusion, colon, risks and rewards. Now, that's a symposium, as you can see, which was hosted by the International Monetary Fund, which is one of the post-Second World War institutions uh, set up uh, by the victors, the allies. And uh, let's go on to the next slide, and we'll see a good write-up of that by the expose. They have correctly headlined this, and it's a full write-up with uh, transcribed remarks Um, IMF chief, she was one of the participants, Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, a branch of the UN, of course. IMF chief says central bank digital currency should be used alongside social credit system to control what people can and cannot buy. That's not literally her words, but they and also Reclaim the Net did write-ups of this event, which carried similar points. Look who's involved. Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, an Argentine by birth, but she's married into the House of Orange, a very big player in European and world banking. Uh, the UN Secretary-General Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development. Uh, that is a, another total, another title of Queen Maxima. Uh, Georgieva, I mentioned. Paul Lee is Deputy Managing Director of the IMF. And finally, from the Bank for International Settlements, they have an Innovation Hub Director who was present, Cecilia Skingsley, Who was transcribed at length talking about fairness, inclusion, and how can we deal with these people who are unbanked, which I take to be code for, who aren't digitally identified yet. Embedded in the page is this BIS tweet saying effectively that we need uh, CBDC, it's not the the panacea, it's not the cure-all, but it has to come, it has to be one of the elements along with digital and financial literacy and identity, among other things. That was Skingsley's part of the event speaking on behalf of the central bankers, central bank. Uh, and Alex,
0: uh, just, yes. before you, just before you move on, we should mention that uh, Rishi Sunak has announced that he's starting discussions with the Bank of England on this topic as well. So, so this is something yeah. very much uh, that Britain is uh, gonna be part of.
1: Oh, absolutely. And of course, if you think trilaterally from the Trilateral Commission, the third advanced economy zone of the world uh, is Japan. And that's why the Trilateral Commission was uh, dreamed up in the 1970s by the Rockefeller-led Western globalist blob. Uh, The Japanese had suddenly leapfrogged into arguably pole position in high tech and IT, but the population remained Uh, quite uh, tenacious in its rejection of uh, intrusive data solutions. uh, On a visit to Japan myself, I found that the Japanese are far less trusting of their government than they are often made out to be. And uh, I've seen remarks from a couple of years ago that the Japanese are openly taking their cue from the EU which they seem to regard as still indistinguishable from the uk for these purposes that the three advanced parts of the world north america advance uh, europe and japan uh, will take each other's lead follow each other's cues on uh, first of all digital services so there's that digital services act uh, which japan is going to try to copy and uh, in this particular case reported by associated press news ap news which of course is a, so which is is an arm of ap the news agency where a lot of in this case us um, and other other uh, world journalists get their information from. Fyodor News was picked up by AP and federated in this piece, reporting on cynicism in Japan about public buy-in to digital identity, nothing else but. Uh, so now the government in Japan is asking for people to apply for My Number Cards. So that's J- the Japanese form. You you find it in different contexts in different countries. In India, it's called Adar and you can't get your child into school without it in most of the states. Uh, Japan, Japan has gone for COD English as always, My Number Cards. Uh, currently, you don't need a photograph or let much less a chip on your health insurance card in Japan, but by late 2024, the current ones will be phased out and the sword of Damocles, the empty threat, or who knows whether it's going to have substance, is that without a new one, uh, with a nice chip and a photo, you will not get your health insurance. So there's been a lot of backlash against that. Uh, the final extract I've taken, which will come up on screen now, is even more telling. Uh, one Japanese interviewee said this is so sensible, I wish we had more people like this in the West. There is a microchip in the new card, and that means there could be fraud. Correct logic. Where there's microchips, there can be fraud. If a machine, says the lady, is reading all the information, that can lead to mistakes in the medical sector too. Correct. More than on paper. And she adds, if this were coming from a trustworthy leadership, and if the economy was thriving, maybe we would even consider it but not in these circumstances. And then finally, they find a professor who seems to be quite on board with the digitization, a professor Watanabe at the University of Tokyo, who says something drastic may have to happen for people to accept global digital identity. These are paraphrasings of his words, but it's a bit ominous, isn't it, given that he raises the specter of the Second World War in which Japan suffered uh, quite un- 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 unimaginably at the end. Uh, that's just a very quick. Uh, oh, you're going to skip that
0: slide? That's no problem. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for that. Now, Vanessa, let's move back to the the uh, middle the Middle East and uh, Syria, uh, Palestine, and uh, Israel. You're muted.
3: Doing this on um, October the twenty fifth, there were um, or there was a big escalation in Nablus and actually Janine or uh, Janine, Uh, young men came uh, to the support of the resistance in Nablus that was under serious attack by the Israeli occupation forces that blew up a car um, with Palestinians inside, killing uh, three which were reported to be members of the newly formed Lions Den resistance in Nablus. Two others were killed uh, who were actually just bystanders caught up uh, in the firefight. 14 injured um, and Israel blew up a house with three anti-tank missiles. And we know that drones uh, were being used to target civilian areas inside Nablus during this particular attack. Um, Now, what I want to talk about, and we can see a video of the funeral procession after um, this escalation in Nablus and the occupied territories, if you have that, Mike. Yep. Now, what is very interesting is that in the clip, um, you probably wouldn't have have identified them, but there are Syrian flags flying um, inside that procession of thousands of people that came out onto the streets for the funerals of uh, the six Palestinians killed during the um, Israeli attacks. Now, why is this relevant? In the last couple of weeks, Hamas has effectively been welcomed back into Damascus. or It's met with President Assad. Why I'm saying that that's unusual is that Hamas, and we don't have time to go into it now, but Hamas was instrumental as a Muslim Brotherhood organization in the destabilization of Syria from uh, pre-2011 onwards. So now what has happened is that Hamas and various um, resistance factions, Palestinian resistance factions, have been um, offered um, forgiveness, let's say, by Syria, and there is now unity between all of the the Palestinian resistance factions, which was also concretized in the Algiers conference um, a few days before the Hamas meeting uh, inside Damascus, where the various Palestinian factions sign a reconciliation agreement in Algiers, the, the declaration of unity, basically. Um, Why is this important? In the last week, Israel has effectively attacked, um, I don't know if you have that slide, Mike. It's attacked Syria uh, three times in less than a week, which is extraordinary, even by Israeli standards. And in fact, um, I have to say that where I'm living, to the west of Damascus, this area is regularly targeted because there is a joint Iranian-Syrian Um, technical research center very close to me. There's also um, an air base and um, an air defense base. I would recommend that everybody um, goes to this blog, Believe in Syria, the Axis of Resistance, which has been established by a young uh, Syrian, former uh, Syrian Arab army researcher and analyst. It will give you an insight that you're not going to get anywhere else and especially not in mainstream media so basically what he argues is that israel now is starting to get desperate with the unity of the palestinian resistance factions and i have to say that my reading of what happened in nablus after the meeting with president assad and hamas is effectively a retaliation from the resistance groups for the attacks by israel on syria Um, And what he explains is that what Israel is trying to do, it knows that Syria is developing drone technology, precision guided missile technology with its allies in underground um, development centers in Masyaf, in Damascus, in Aleppo. And it wants to destroy these um, centers, but it can't with guided missiles because basically they're underground, the missiles are not Um, precision enough to be able to enter the underground facilities and destroy them. So what is Israel trying to do? It's trying to create a hole in Syria's um, air defense so that it can actually send planes into Syrian territory to try and destroy these research centers because Israel now is in a very precarious position. As I've argued before, it's facing multiple fronts, Yemen, Iran, Syria. Palestinian resistance, Hezbollah. It lost over, it had to surrender over the Karish uh, gas deal because it was being threatened militarily by Hezbollah if it didn't back down. It backed down. So we're seeing a very desperate Israel, which I think is in parallel with a very desperate US and UK reference, Ukraine of course, um, and so, But I think the, the main takeaway point from here now is the unity and solidarity of the Palestinian resistance faction. So I think we are going to see an escalation in tensions um, in the occupied territories, maybe even from Gaza and maybe ultimately also from Syria, if Israel continues to violate uh, Syria's uh, territorial integrity as it is doing. And I have to say, One of the attacks uh, three days ago, the missile passed over the roof of my house at around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. There were children in the school playground. This was targeting Damascus Airport. But these missiles can be brought down at any point, and the shrapnel from the bringing down can land in any of these civilian areas. So for people to really understand, these are not only military tactical self-defense attacks or aggression, as Israel likes to describe them. But these potentially can kill civilians. Yeah.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, let's, let's move over to the United States then uh, for the midterms. Patrick?
2: Yes, <clears throat> the midterms are November 8th, so that's coming up really quick. And I'm going to say mm-hmm. that uh, you know the results of these elections, uh, they could very well have a, uh, a significant effect, some say maybe even a profound effect, uh, on U.S. foreign policy uh, and also to do with big tech censorship. So that's a global issue um, as well. Let's just take a quick look at how things are shaping up. We we told you about Kari Lake and her uh, run in Arizona. It's very significant, in fact. Um, so let's look at the, the 2022 uh, races. They're tightening up. Kari <clears throat> Lake was neck and neck with Katie Hobbs, maybe even a little bit behind in some polls last week. Uh, when we last spoke, and that is completely opened up. Uh, So Katie Hobbs is the Secretary of State of Arizona. Carrie Lake is the insurgent candidate. She's against uh, mandatory vaccines. She's calling out the pharmaceutical companies for the, quote, experimental shots. She's saying, no way, our kids are going to be subject to that. No myocarditis outbreaks among our children's population. So pretty, pretty amazing. And the media has basically gone full bore to uh, demonize her, characterize her as the most dangerous politician in the United States, uh, I've heard some commentators say. So that's pretty amazing. Now, what's what's also interesting is that the Senate race in Arizona uh, is really coattailing, it seemed to coattail, Kari Lake's uh, gubernatorial run here. So Blake Masters has is, is right now a statistical tie. When we say statistical tie, we mean within the margin of error of whatever the polling methodology is. This is the uh, uh, insider advantage poll here, uh, which has been fairly uh, accurate um, in a number of other uh, races in terms of tracking along with real clear politics polling average. But look at that, neck and neck with the incumbent, the Democrat incumbent Mark Kelly. Blake Masters, kind of a Ron Paul libertarian uh, slate that he's running under. He's in his mid-30s, is very young. Uh, so it's certainly he wasn't even in the race. You can see the Libertarian candidate, Mark Victor, at 6%. Unfortunately for Republicans, uh, Libertarian candidates who are running are going to be pulling mostly Republican votes away. Uh, so that would be uh, something that uh, will be a, a point of argument going forward. There's also 6% undecided in there. Anyway, that's wide open. It's trending towards Blake Masters. You have to remember for the U.S. Senate, currently tied with the tie-breaking vote, with Kamala Harris, the vice president, one race or two races, tight races around the country are going to mean the difference between whichever party is going to take control of the Senate. That has huge implications considering what might be coming down the pipeline. We're talking about impeachment hearings against Joe Biden, uh, congressional hearings on Hunter Biden, uh, big tech censorship, uh, even the vaccine issue. Certainly, Anthony Fauci might find himself in front of a uh, congressional hearing as well. So all of these things uh, are significant going forward. Let's look at another tight race here. Uh, Patty Murray in the state of Washington. She's been pretty much a lock, a Democrat lock there. The former soccer mom, she's been in there for a very long time, uh, many decades, in fact. She's being challenged by Tiffany Smiley, another insurgent candidate. These are people that have really come out of nowhere in a lot of these races to challenge uh, what would normally have been safe seats by Democrats. I mean, Washington State is pretty much impregnable uh, electorally, at least it has been for a very, very long time. So again, the Senate is really, really important as to uh, what the legislative trajectory is going to be, whether it's going to be gridlock uh, and things like this. So move on to another interesting race. Now, this is getting a lot of press. This is Pennsylvania's U.S. Senate race. Now, John Fetterman's a Democrat. He's a lieutenant governor. He recently had a stroke about five months ago before the primaries and the party elected to to have him keep running even though he had a stroke he's having uh visible cognitive difficulties he required close captioning for the recent television debate here with Mehmet Oz otherwise known as Dr. Oz sort of the medical Donald Trump if you will U.S. former TV uh health uh, uh TV star uh on the Republican ticket up uh, Fetterman's lead now. They're almost neck and neck after a disastrous TV debate performance by Fetterman. Fetterman, it was embarrassing to a lot of people to see him having trouble talking uh, and finishing sentences and repeating himself. And it was very sad. But then the media is attacking anybody criticizing him as being ableist, if you can believe that. They're saying, oh, he's recovering from a stroke. Uh, And so it's a crazy discussion we're having. But of course, in the wake of Joe Biden, being the template uh, for someone who's cognitively challenged in a powerful office, is, it seems like uh, a normal, normal fare right now in the U.S. It's a very bizarre uh, situation we find ourselves in. So it, it, the games it, the games are already beginning. Look at this. Now, this is why Pennsylvania may not have election night results and why that's okay, says all of the media outlets. So the Secretary of State, the interim Secretary of State, in Pennsylvania saying oh we might not have the votes counted in time this is basically a rerun of the 20 election more than 1 million mail in ballots have been requested in Pennsylvania with roughly 5% having been returned so far an overwhelming majority of voters mail in ballots are democrats so during the last elections in 2018 roughly 5 million uh, total Pennsylvanians voted so you can see the the percentage there of mail in ballots it's massive so the, uh, the, the stout Democratic establishment really possibly speaking through the Secretary of State here saying, well, there might be a problem counting the votes. Uh, this might go on for days after the actual election. So you, this is going to cause a huge, huge controversy in America, especially since the Senate race could be a potential tiebreaker uh, here in Pennsylvania. So again, back to the good old days of 2020. Now, this is another important race here in Georgia. Uh, Progressive uh, polls show here. Uh, Raphael Warnock, he's the Democrat Senate uh, seat uh, that took over. He's being challenged by Herschel Walker, former NFL football star. And Walker was way behind in the last couple of weeks. He's now tied. So statistical will tie. Stacey Abrams is losing by 10 points uh, to uh, Brian Kemp in the governor's race. So that's, that's really important. Georgia is a massive battleground state. It's a massive swing state. So it's now trending towards the Republicans here. And again, that's another key U.S. Senate race with an outsider, Herschel Walker, coming in. And I just want to point to Herschel Walker there in the lower left-hand corner being an African-American uh, Republican. As you can see, that's pretty much an anomaly uh, in, in the past. But now we're seeing more and more African-American Republicans and Latino candidates uh, who are maybe, you know, stepping forward and now becoming embraced by the party. This has caused a massive demographic shift. And let's take a look at what that that is right now. This is a new poll from USA Today. 40% of Hispanics, 21% of blacks now backing the Republican Party. So this is is threatening the uh, sort of... uh, the, the stranglehold that the Democrats have had by owning all ethnic minority votes traditionally and and in terms of them holding that that sort of secure lead where by the, the swing votes were normally in white or middle class American demographics but they could always count on a basic monopoly uh, with regards to minority votes so that's all changed now and so there's a lot of people scratching their heads what, how is that happening? So let's take a look at that now's the USA today poll. And how is that happening? We'll go to Breitbart News, John Nolte, who's um, got a, a number of colorful reports from the campaign trail, and we will show you why are uh, Hispanics and African Americans fleeing uh, the Democratic Party for the Republicans. So it's a lot more than just the economy, stupid, using the Bill Clinton quote there. John Nolte says, what I see is a cultural awakening driven by the Democratic Party's shift to the extreme left and an open rebellion against the Democratic Party driven by black Americans. And he goes on, it's also Democrats who want to defund the police and bail uh, and open the prisons. And who do those policies affect the most? Black Americans who live in these failed Democratic-run cities. And he goes on. Then there's the Democratic Party's open embrace of the demonic transsexual agenda, largely. Christian black population and Latino, we add, does not want the horrors which the Democrats are pushing there, which are gay porn in schools and the permanent mutilation of their children through puberty blockers, chemical castration, and sex change operations. Now, that might sound hyperbolic to some people, but in fact, uh, this is what Americans are talking about right now, even if it's not being highlighted by a lot of the corporate media. This is actually the conversation. That's going on on the ground. So the Democrat Party was the party of the working class, says John Nolte. Now it's the party of allowing men to play in women's sports, allowing men to into women's locker rooms, sexualization of children, emptying prisons, opening the border, aborting black babies, closing schools, forced vaccinations, record inflation, and the worst economy since Jimmy Carter was president. And if the Democratic Party loses even 20% of the black vote, which it has, it is doomed. But holding on to the trans-Nazis means losing Hispanic and black voters. So, so what? So this, this is on Twitter here, this is Breitbart. So uh, Hispanic voters are done with this lying corrupt fraud. He's talking about Joe Biden and the Biden administration. According to the latest Quinnipiac poll, the president now just 20% 20% approval rating among his say very similar among other the, look at people, red, red uh, term black people are bra off be able to take the results and so here Elon Musk kind of postulates where a lot of people are at. I put his title as the head of everything because he seems to be the head of everything this week after he's taken over Twitter. But in the past, he says, I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindest party, but they've become the party of division and hate. So I can no longer support them and will vote Republican. Now watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. And indeed, they have unfolded. The U.S. federal government has opened an investigation against Elon Musk, uh, partly for his acquisition potential or his actual acquisition of Twitter. Uh, So that might be tied up in the courts going forward. But let's just uh, review the results here. We'll look at Nate Silver's 538 here. So this is a pretty fair, uh, more, he's more, I'd say, a Democrat-leaning pollster. Let's take a look at this. In terms of the House of Representatives, uh, a lot of people believe, including him, that the Republicans have a lock to, to take the House. So That means Nancy Pelosi's political career is over. Uh, so the Republicans will take the House by all indications. Now, the U.S. Senate, is a different story. So the US Senate is right now uh, a dead heat. It seems that way anyway. So right now, he's giving an 80% chance that the Democrats could take up to 53 seats. That would be plenty to hold a majority in the Senate. But statistically, it's a dead tie. And as we've shown you, a number of these races, like Arizona's Senate race, that were normally, that looked like Mark Kelly, the Democrat, for instance, had a lock. They're trending in the other direction now very rapidly in the run-up to November 8th. So there's there could be a few surprises here. And again, it only takes the Republicans to take, take back one of those seats uh, to get a majority. They only need one senator um, in the majority as well because obviously the vice president is a tie-breaking vote uh, in the Senate, which the Democrats currently have. So that's what's happening in the U.S. elections. So it's going to be very interesting and hopefully we'll be able to give you Uh, an even closer up-to-the-date report next Friday uh, at the same time.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much. Now, I just want to end today because we're out of time with this. Uh, Keir Starmer meets Bill Gates in Parliament. So this was The Independent yesterday. Uh, The Microsoft co-founder and billionaire met Sir Keir on Wednesday with the pair discussing climate change and health. And they're saying that the Microsoft co-founder and billionaire discussed a range of issues, uh, and they talk about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, one of the largest philanthropic bodies of its kind, leading a global funding drive in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, a, Labour spoke, a Labour spokesperson said Keir Starmer was pleased to meet with Bill Gates today and discuss a number of issues of mutual concern, including how the UK best supports global health and equitable development and how we use the goal of net zero to invest in science and technology to deliver the jobs and growth of the future. So that's fantastic. Billy Goats uh, meets Keir Starmer. Uh, I'm wondering what else did he come over just for that one meeting or was he in parliament for something else? So I thought I would take a look and see. And I have to say, this is probably uh, the first time that I've ever seen anything quite so outrageous as this. So here is what happens when I searched for Bill Gates UK Parliament on Google. And we see uh, the first page there, Keir Starmer meets Gates in Parliament, Evening Standard. Well, okay. Then the Independent. Then the Rumford Recorder, the Shropshire Star. Uh, then we have uh, uh, the Comet. And then we have about 10 or 12 pages of exactly this. That's only the top half of the page of Google. Remember, there's uh, the same number of, of uh, um, uh, links below the, the fold there, as it were. So let's go to the second page. The same thing. Identical title. The third page the 4th, the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, the ninth, the 10th. And so it goes on. And uh, so I, I'm interested to get the thoughts from each of you on this just, just before we end, because this, uh, as I say, this is the first time that I've seen a particular story absolutely overwhelm the, the results of search. And if this is the direction, Patrick, that we're heading in, first of all, where search engine is producing nothing but this type of thing and we cannot find no other information, we're in a pretty dangerous situation.
2: It's not just for that search, Mike, that's pretty much across the board. That's normally how Google's functioning now for pretty much everything. So the, the the first page will be front loaded uh, with all the government uh, or sort of high level mainstream media or think tank, uh, things that more or less uh, are the same sort of viewpoint the same sort of information, identical headlines, etc. And you you have to go so far and take so much time digging through Google. So you have to use an alternative search engine in order to get any kind of sort of diverse search uh, on anything. But I also just point out, Keir Starmer is a member of the Trilateral Commission. I think people should make a note of that. So is that uh, Bill Gates playing the role of Bilderberg and tapping uh, Keir Starmer for his future leadership position as a trilateralist? Uh, in charge, a technocrat in charge at the helm of the uh, the British government. That's just something for the future.
0: Yes, good question. Vanessa, any thoughts?
3: Well, I mean, you know, there are many uh, analysts who have the opinion that, that what we're seeing is an implosion within the Conservative Party to, to pave the way for Keir Starmer's eventual election. So I guess... Uh, apart from the Google shenanigans, I, I guess also we're going to be saying Karastama making sure that he's in with the in crowd if that eventuality comes comes about.
1: Yeah. Alex? Well, it's a bit hackneyed to talk about Orwell in 1984. It was tempting in this case because, of course, this is about the rewriting of the news, which is what the uh, uh, protagonist does in 1984. Uh, So instead, I'll go for another book in the same genre, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. And at least in the film adaptation, you recall the uh, newscaster's uh, pronouncement at the end when Montag is apprehended, or at least fake Montag is, cousins everywhere will rejoice. So in this case, I would say that the uh, uh, briefing written from the centre disseminated to all these news agencies would be, cousins everywhere will rejoice at the visit of Helmsman Bill to Prime Minister Designate here.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, right. We've got to end it there. We'll be back in a few minutes on the uh, UK Column live stream for uh, some extra. If you're a member, uh, otherwise, uh, hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll see you 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.